Caleb and the Poison Dart. The best tool for the last American bullet is the Poison Dart. I couldn't believe the Kippy E voice showed me how to join the club. All that I had to do was take an ordinary sewing pin and clip off the head and then glue it and wrap with thread with pin to the end of the flat hewn wooden toothpick and then blow it out of an ordinary drink straw and carefully aim at an unsuspecting harmless target like a school bus tire. After school, of course. I was in the club and suspended from school in the same blow. I felt the teacher's hand on the back of my neck. I watched the bus pull out of the school driveway with one of my fabulously well-crafted pretend poison tire darts sticking out of the black rubber tire. Caleb was the only one home to get the call from the principal. He was a saint. He came into the office with the female school arms giggling, and the humble man grinned as he displayed the dangers of the poison dart by simply placing the needle's point against his bald skull. He said to the principal and one of the elder teachers, while I stood silently, eyes on the ground, Ouch! That could really do something. In the years to come, he'd say, That Gary boy, out hunting elephants with a toothpick. <laughs> More dangerous missions. I had a friend named Chuck Kirkpatrick who used to be my partner in various dangerous missions that we were sent on by the government to destroy the world's enemies with our code names, shoulder hoists, and bicycles. We had many narrow escapes. If it wasn't for Chuck's quick reflexes, I might have been killed on various occasions. We practiced jujitsu and created our own little world of organized fantasy. We called it Team. T-E-A-M. Teamwork enforced by agents for mankind. Faded glory. Oh yes, it was an incredibly involved game with rules often made up as we went along. When I would arrive at Dev's house, Chuck's code name, after school he would check me for proper identification to prove that I wasn't just another agent of the enemy trying to either kill or acquire top secret information from him. He complained of imposters quite often. Once I arrived at Chuck's house and found the front door wide open, I immediately assumed that he was waiting to ambush me as I entered. I thought perhaps that he was being controlled by the enemy forces that were forcing him to seek my destruction against his will, as any last American bullet should. Withdrew my cap pistol from my holster and yelled, Dev, are you in there? Are you all right? No answer came. Perhaps he saw me coming and for sure thought that I was an imposter and was going to get me before I could get him. He was always quick on the draw. I yelled again, Dev, it's me, Shane. Shane was my code name. When again no answer came, I entered. With gun in hand, I cautiously walked, walked upstairs. I found no one in his room or in any of the other rooms on the second floor of his duplex. I noticed the living room as I came downstairs. It seemed to look as if someone had staged a terrific fight. Chairs were turned over, pillows on the floor, and more mess. I got nervous on this realization. Obviously, there had been trouble. My partner was probably seriously, if not fatally, involved. I checked to see if my gun was properly loaded with caps. (laughs) 
Hearing the sound check of Man from Uncle in my head, I proceeded down the basement. When I got to the top of the stairs, I saw Deb was down there. All I could hear were muffled cries. As I got far enough downstairs to see the basement, I couldn't believe my eyes. Chuck had been tied to his father's pool table, face up by his hands and feet, and gagged across the mouth. Hanging from above him was a three-foot pole with a point on the end lingering somewhat ominously over the center of his chest. It was hanging by a piece of rope that extended over the piping in the basement, ceiling across the living room, and tied directly over a candle, which would be any minute burned through the rope, allowing the three-foot shaft to plunge into Dev's secret agent anatomy. Well, my job was obvious. As the last American bullet, I had to free him. Dev somehow freed his mouth from the gag, in time to warn me of the force field, which had been carefully set up at the bottom of the stairs. I avoided the force field by climbing on top of the banister by the stairs and swinging from the piping, I landed directly on the pool table. I quickly untied his hands and feet. We escaped with our lives. My big brother Joe, firstborn of four, grew up strong, and my dad used to let him handle Domino, our horse, in the the hay barn on Rainbow Farm. And Joe was kind of macho that he would, he got good with the the lasso, the rope. He would rope us kids like cattle and chase after us. We all were running across the pasture at Rainbow Farm, screaming like we were going to die. But we weren't going to die because my brother was so good at roping. He would just rope us by our feet or by our neck, or I don't know how he would get us, but he would chase us down, and one of us would be tied up, and Jody would jump off the horse and run around and twirl the rope around her feet and our hands, and he got off on being a macho, and he was my oldest brother. He was six years older than me. My older brother was three years older than me, and my younger brother was three years younger than me. We were all three years apart. That was kind of odd. I don't know how my parents did that. Maybe the rhythm method. I don't know how they worked it out, but had kids three years apart, four kids. Well, Rainbow Farm was a beautiful place. And on my last night at Rainbow Farm, Three of my friends came over to the, the farm and we decided that we wanted to have grappling hooks so I could repel off the rooftop with grappling hooks. It was an iron rod welded together and bent, bent with the welding tool so it made a hook. Grappling hooks was a must-have for any last American bullet, and also any hero that I was indeed. So I wanted to be able to climb any rooftop and repel to the ground. So my last night at Rainbow Farm, my little brother Peter was not able to climb.
climb like we could, but my friends and I, we all climbed to the roof and repelled down without getting hurt. And we thought we were pretty cool. And Caleb was sleeping upstairs again because he was still living at our house all the way to the end till we moved to Pelham. And Caleb came with us to Pelham. But my mom drove us all in the family car with Lucy, our dog, and Pusser, our cat, in the car all the way to Pelham from Rainbow Farm, north of Philadelphia, all the way up to Pelham, New York. Big changes moved to Pelham, New York. Jim Lavinson, 1919. In 1967, my parents moved from our little farm in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania, to a large three-story, eight-bedroom house in Pelham, New York. It's situated right on the shores of Long Sound. At first, it was difficult to take the transition, but it wasn't long before my brothers and I made lots of new friends. My oldest brother, Jody, was still in the service. He wasn't really part of our new life in Pelham, New until a few years later. Our new house provided new settings for my adventures. There was only one seawall to separate our house from two-thirds of an acre and the Long Island waters. It was a beautiful place to live with constant activity to watch the waterways out our living room picture window. My father moored his 44-foot yacht, Vintage, within clear sight in the channel. He would always glance proudly in this direction before jumping in his car going to work in New York City every day. The summers were filled with water sport activities. My father got a small boat to transport himself from the 30-foot dock that extended off the seawall out one-eighth mile to his pride and joy, the anchored vintage. My brothers and I were allowed to use a speedboat for water skiing and adventures. The trauma of moving from the birthplace in Pennsylvania was easily quelled by my new active life. My younger brother Peter was only 11. He and I spent a lot of time playing together with our new friends in the neighborhood. There were three families in the area with two sons that were same age as Peter and I. It was a unique situation because Peter and I could always play in the same places with mutual friends who were brothers also. At that age, when my friends and I would play with our younger brothers, we would always keep the upper hand. We didn't let our younger brothers join in our activities too often, so when it did occur, they were so grateful they did anything that we wanted. We had them do all the dirty work. Sometimes we were a bit malicious, but older brothers always got their way. My brother Michael, age 17, was not involved with the same friends as Peter and I, but he socialized in his own circle. It was a fast-paced crowd. His Pelham High School friends seemed wilder than his athletic friends that he left behind in Pennsylvania. Only a few months after he moved to New York, Mike was caught by the police for drinking beer with his friends in a parking lot. Mike was underage. It was the first time anyone in our family had broken the law. My father was furious. When he left to go to the police station to bail him out, Mike came home drunk. He was punished severely 
and grounded for three months. It scared me. I didn't like beer. I didn't understand what Mike was getting into with his friends. They all just seemed to like to sneak out and get drunk. For a long time, Mike would never associate with Pete and me or our friends. I always looked up to Mike and wanted to hang out with him and his friends, but I was just a little brother. Whenever I came to the room, if Mike was with a buddy or girlfriend, he would get embarrassed by me. Then at the end of the summer, one day when I was 15, it changed. Mike had just returned from a four-week vacation in Europe that Dad provided. Mike had met some people in the youth hostel that had talked to him about some mind-expanding concepts. Mike came home a different person. The people he had run into had given a book called Be Here Now. They taught him to meditate, do yoga exercise, and other things that left a strong impression on him. Mike had let his hair grow. My father was beginning to think he was trying to look like a girl. Mother asked if Mike was becoming a hippie. Of my many adventures was one that I embarked on at age 14 with younger brother Peter, who was 11. I was sure that Caleb would be busy watching TV upstairs on the third floor and would be none the wiser. He never heard as Peter and I embarked on our adventures, jumping out of the second floor window, gently swinging down the limb of a thin maple tree that was growing as high as the porch, which was annexed to my bedroom at 20 Shore Road in Pelham, New York. In 1968, we were pretending to be super sleuths and spies for the secret ages of mankind and uncle, U-N-C-L-E, the espionage group that I knew all about from TV. It was exciting, and I knew that my brother Peter could pass the test and actually transport himself down the distance from the window to the ground in one easy step by simply grabbing hold of the branch and with only his weight, bend the tree and arrive unscathed and unhurt and even ready for attack on any prevailing enemies that might be in our imagination or in our field of vision. First I grabbed the branch and let myself fall from the roof overhang outside the porch window while holding on the thin tree limb and as if engineered my masterminds in only a split second I was on the ground. I turned back up to Peter and said, See how I did that? Peter said, yep. I said, now you do it. Peter hesitated, and I urged him by saying, it's easy, you can do it. He just didn't have the self-conviction. He did not approach the jump with the right confidence. He took a half step, reached for the tree, and then just fell off the roof and missed the tree entirely. Then he hit the ground. I thought he was surely dead. He fell to 15 feet or more and didn't make a sound. I saw him miss the branch. It was quite comical, considering he didn't even come close to the tree. Another sad fate for the last American bullet. <laughs> he hit the ground and broke his arm. Thinking that he had just knocked the wind out of himself, I rolled him over and threw his arms up over his head. That is the proper thing when someone knocks the wind out of himself. Little did I know that he had broken his arm and I had actually reset it. It was badly fractured, and Caleb was still upstairs watching TV. I asked Peter if he was okay, which after a few moments of scary silence, he said, yep. I said, now I think you should go up to your room and pretend that you were doing your homework. Peter agreed and went 
inside and up to his room in silence. He was quite the trooper. I was thinking. I was glad that Caleb had been none the wiser. And after ten minutes, I could hear whimpering noises coming from Peter's room. I went up the hallway and listened. He was crying. And I knew why. Mom and Dad were at a party. Caleb was the babysitter that night for the young super spies. Finally, I decided that Caleb should know. So I went upstairs and knocked on his door. I said, Caleb, I think Peter is hurt. I think you should check him out. He said, golly, you kids are a pain in my butt. We rushed Peter up to the hospital. Sure enough, his arm was broken. Doctor said that obviously I had reset his arm. When I threw his hands up over his head, I was never sure if Peter was thankful or not. <laughs> but I felt some consolation knowing that I had helped him make the recovery smoother. Was I the unsung hero? Peter had to suffer just six months in a cast which he had to endure on our fabulous trip to the Bahamas. He was quite the trooper. Never serious about being serious. I was similar to my father. I took my fun and games very seriously, but I could never get serious about being serious. My mother was right. I got so involved with my adventures that I closed the real world out. All of my creative energies went into my adventures. As the last American bullet, I guess you could say it's a search for identity. As I look back on the years, I can almost see the different characters that I donned. Sometimes the characters were the, for amusement and sometimes for protection. I started out as a ladies' man and compulsive fighter from the age of three. Soon I also became a warrior and then a cowboy. Then I reached my teens. I advanced to becoming hip and hippies and pot smokers, and I learned about mind expansion. A rock star, then a born-again Christian evangelist. Then I learned the teachings of Don Juan that became an apprentice sorcerer with LSD reefer for my mescalito. Next, I traced it all back to my parents and my wild imagination coupled with psychotherapy. It showed me that it was merely programming that made me what I am. Hybrid life. I've developed a new hybrid religion and lifestyle, a conglomerate existence complete only as it encompasses all. It is belief that one is God and the universe is all. Parents are the focal point. Experience is the result of their programming. Jesus is an example. God is the Father, and the mother comes from the Father. Mother is desire and emotion. Nirvana is heaven. Mescalito is Jesus and his brother to Buddha. One is nothing without the other. All experience in two parts, and it can be recognized only in a separate reality. Every step is determined. Nothing is shameful except giving up. Dead spirit is the fear. Understanding and harmony is the goal. There is something to be gained from every second. Disillusionment is merely a warning sign for the unresolved anger. Anger in the words that you say, and guilt is the sin that you get from your anger. It all begins when you are born, separates as you gain worldly wisdom. It is all a search for mother and an answer for father. The visionary and the insane are one. One doesn't exist without nothingness. One must stand on faith to survive and grow in this world and the world beyond. Karma is evolution. The soul is never transgressed in the words of the last American bullet. Thee who hesitates is lost. And look before you leap. Don't take any wooden nickels. <laughs>